This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with my co-host Craig Blumenshine. Hi, Craig. Happy Monday, Ashley. Happy Monday to you. I got to do yoga barefoot outside over the weekend, so I'm kind of digging these warm temps. We've got a very fun uh, Main Street coming up throughout the week. We're going to talk about snow sculpting. We're going to talk about the stars of PBS Planetarium show, and we have a very tasty, very fun member drive. The short and sweet starting uh, this week, Wednesday. The second half of today's show, also a nice, fun theme uh, about kids. Craig, you're going to introduce us to Jackie Sather from Jamestown, who has been dancing for 50 years. And she talks about that passion. She does. And she's been teaching at the Top of the Stairs Dance Studio in Jamestown for decades, including my granddaughter. And that's where I got to Aww. meet her. As Of course, they have recitals and things. And Jackie's just a wonderful, wonderful gal to chat with. The other interview that we lead off the show today, Ashley, is also about children. But I'm sorry, it's, it's just not fun. We're going to learn about what it means to be a homeless student mm. and the fact that there are several dozens, hundreds in our state that are homeless but still go to school every day. We'll have an interesting interview now with Jan Anderson. She is the Fargo Schools Homeless Liaison. Jan, welcome to Main Street. Thank you. As I told you earlier, Jan, I'm almost sorry we're having this conversation. I think many, including me, will be surprised to learn that there is a homeless problem with children right here where we live. And I think that's where I'd like to start. What is the scope of the homeless problem for students in Fargo? Well, most people, when they think about homeless, they think of adults. They think of people that are living in a shelter or out on the streets or in their cars. Um, it's very different when you're looking at with children. We have a law or an act that's called the McKinney-Vento Act, and it's to protect the rights of homeless children and youth. And that's a federal act? Yes, Passed it's a in the late 1980s? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that it does is it, it mandates that every school district have a homeless liaison that is addressing the needs of kids who are experiencing homelessness. When you start looking at kids that are homeless, it, it does look different. We, of course, under McKinney-Vento, we use the definition of kids that don't live in a fixed, regular, or adequate place. So, of course, it's the shelters. It's kids who are, might be staying in campers, or in the tents in the, camp, you know, in the campground. They might be sleeping in their cars some. With some of our older, unaccompanied youth, they maybe are sleeping in like in apartment buildings, wherever they can tuck in under steps to stay warm sometimes, if they've been kicked out of wherever they've been doubling up. It could be your couch hoppers that will stay with a friend for a couple days and stay with another friend. A few years ago, we had some that were um, sleeping in some of the colleges. You know, when they would go in the, the big open areas with the couches and things, they could go get warm and, and find a place to sleep. And so it, it includes those, you know, people that are in the shelters and, and those, but it, with McKinney-Vento, it also includes families that are doubled up. And we ask them, is where you're living temporary? Is it due to some type of hardship? Have they been evicted? Has there been a death in the family that they couldn't keep their apartment? Th- those types of hardships that they are staying with someone. So in a regular HUD definition of homelessness, the people that are doubled up do not count as a homeless person because they have some place to stay. But when you have a family that is doubling up with someone because they have nowhere to stay, it's very different because you're not just having one person sleeping on the couch. You could have five or six people moving into, a, you know, coming to stay with someone that's an already crowded location. So you could have 
two, three families living in a two-bedroom apartment and, you know, staying there for a little while and staying someplace else. It's, it doesn't include the families that choose to live together for economic reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, they say we're, it benefits both of us. Sure. It's not that. What kind of numbers are we talking about relative to students? To students. Okay. Last year at this time, we had 240. Wow. This year, we have 274. I'm wondering, unfortunately, the problem is getting worse. It's mm -hmm. not getting better. But I'm wondering, too, based on the definitions you gave me, is do you think you know who all of the students are who are homeless? They always say, when I've gone to national conferences, that if you have identified 300, there are probably 600 because you have families that um, don't want to identify as homeless. They kind of slide under the radar. They're able to make it on their own and the kids can get to school. They can do all the things that they need to do. Um, and then we also have our unaccompanied youth that at times are afraid to come forward and say, I'm not living with my parents for fear that they're going to be sent someplace back where they don't want to be. And so it takes, I don't know if necessarily that our numbers are getting worse every year or if it's that we're just identifying better. You know, we're identifying more. Last year we hit, what was it, 336. Jan, do we know whether North Dakota has a problem that is maybe worse than other states in the country? Maybe not quite as bad, which is a good thing, but still a problem? It's still a problem. I don't think it's as bad as some of the inner city, you know, where people will say they'll open school up and have seven, eight hundred kids the first day. You know, some of the large inner city schools. It's not as bad as that, but it's growing in North Dakota. And a lot of times people don't think that there are even any homeless kids in Fargo. Sure. Why might it be growing? Um, expense. Apartments are very expensive. Houses are hard to get. If someone has had, um, usually one of the biggest barriers is if they've been evicted someplace before and if they owe money at those places. If they have any kind of um, a felony on their record, that can stop them from being able to rent a place. And there's still kids that are attached to these parents. Sure. So they still have to figure out, you know, where are we going to live and how can we support our families? And it makes it hard. We're going to get into what it's like for a student to be homeless in just a moment. But what is your role, Jan? I'm the lead on a team of homeless liaisons in the district. I have four other ladies that work with me. We make sure that we remove any barriers. Do they have clothing to come to school? We can help with getting school clothing. Do they have a ride to school? If they live in their area, they can take the school bus, you know, if they're staying with someone in the area. If not, if the parents have a car, we might help them with a gas card. If they are older, we might do city bus. We have some vans now that we've started through Homeless Services where we're picking kids up all over and some of them, you know, might be moving around a lot so we can pick them up and get them to school. And the last thing we do is we offer taxi service if there's no other way to use them or if the vans are full. Those are barriers. We sign them up for free breakfast and lunch. We help with finding the resources in the community, school supplies, anything possible that can make it so that the kids can come to school. One of the biggest barriers that we work with, we help with enrolling kids because they don't have an address. Sometimes they come in, they don't have their paperwork. So we help to get their documents, their social security cards, their birth certificates, help them to enroll, you know, and it's a lot of education on our part as a team to uh, working with our schools to help them understand it's their right to go there. Yes, you do need to let them in, even though they don't have a, an address. So those are the kinds of things we do. Is it a transient issue too for you, Jan? Do you see kids for a little while and then all of a sudden they are gone, but somebody else is here? We have certain parts of town, it seems like, 
will be more transient. If they've been in the community for a long time, they know more people that they can stay with. And so then they can maybe double up with someone for a while till they can get back on their feet. And so they'll stay in the area. Other people may be coming through here or they come here for job opportunities, something happens, they get a job, but it isn't what they thought, they lose it, they end up just leaving. They may have been homeless in the beginning or at the end, but and then they're not here as long. Put me in the shoes of a young little boy or girl mm. that is homeless, but still makes it to school every day. Thinking of a little guy this year that we've had that was down at the shelter. In the morning, the van would go pick him up. He was afraid to go not knowing if mom was going to be at the shelter when he came home, if he was going to be in daycare, if mom was at work, if something had happened to her. That's what a lot of our kids, they come to school not really knowing what's going to happen after school, if they're going to be where you know they're supposed to be. Our parents are great about letting us know we had to move here or we're going to be here or something happened so that we can let the kids know and take them to where the parents are. You know, coming to school sometimes with you know the kids, it's like, I don't have any clothes to wear, no clean clothes. I don't want to come in the same thing three days in a row, everyone's going to laugh at me. You know, so it's making sure that we help mm -hmm. get laundry detergent and some things like that so that they can be here. You know, we always say at least get them to school because then they can eat breakfast and lunch. And then, you know, if we need to, you know, send some of the things home so that they have something to eat. Families, when they're doubled up, you have a lot of people sometimes staying in one place and not even knowing, um, you know, their spot to sleep might be on the floor in the kitchen. It's wherever they can put down enough places for kids to sleep. Can homeless students succeed in school? Oh, absolutely. Tell me about that. I've had some, my unaccompanied youth, older ones, graduate even a year early and go on to college. Some get scholarships. They very much can succeed. I've had some go into the military. I think of here in town, we have a few that have started like their own businesses with getting licensed for childcare and Another one, I think she's, she, I just saw her license that she got. She does like a pop-up restaurant and wants to do a food truck. Enjoying our conversation with Jan Anderson. She is the homeless liaison for the Fargo Public Schools. Jan, for kids who are homeless that do make it to school, well, here comes Christmas break or mm -hmm. summer. What happens in their lives then? Our job is to make sure that kids have everything that they, have, they need for school. So then what we try to do through the year is build the resources with the families in the community so they know where to go for help. And help might mean mental health It issues. could be mental health issues and during the school year also. Health issues? Health issues. We do, even during the school year, we do referrals to doctors, to dentists, to vi for vision, for mental health. We have our school wellness facilitators. Three of the ladies that work with me I also do that job. So they also help work to get our families the mental health support that they need or counseling. A lot of times we'll have moms or dads will say to us, we need to get settled first. We have to get a few things just calm. And once we're in, yep, now we're ready. A lot of our families, they have a lot on their plates, a lot. And it's hard to juggle everything. And everyone always says, oh, it's so easy. You know, just go get on, people are on assistance or on, they're on food stamps or SNAP. They're not. It's hard to be on some of those things because you have to keep track of if you make money. You have to let them know. Even having the paperwork keep up with you wherever you're at so that you can renew or send in what you need to send in, you know, without getting the notice that you're going to lose your benefit. We take a lot of pride, I think, in trying to keep our kids in their school of origin. They have a right that if they are living in one area, they lose their housing in that area. Maybe they go across town to stay with grandma. We do everything we can to keep those kids in that school because at times we can count some families that will stay in eight, nine, ten different places. If we moved the kids' schools every single time, the kids would never 
ever, you know, they would ever just fit in. You know, mm -hmm. it takes too long to acclimate to a new school, to new classmates, to new routines. And every time a child moves, they lose part of their education time. How are teachers trained to help with this issue, mm -hmm. either to recognize that one of my students may be homeless mm -hmm. or may be about to become homeless? A lot of times it's just listening to little clues that they say, like, oh, we're not staying there anymore. We went to stay at my auntie's house or we're going to go to the hotel for a few days or, you know, it's, it's a listening piece. And we do that even with like our registrars and different ones. Listen to little clues that they drop about where they're at or watching to see if, like I said, if they have the same clothes on every day or if they're coming to school without their homework, their backpacks. And, you know, just trying to look for those little things to identify them. In the classroom, like with our older kids, they don't always want us to know. You know, it's a, it's a privacy issue too. And even with our, our parents, we don't automatically send a list to the school saying, here's your homeless families. It's, it, we have privacy issues, sure. you know, we keep that private. We know the families talk to them. We also talk with, you know, the people at the schools so that we can work together and support the family. If all of a sudden they're starting to fall behind or they're working too much or they're bouncing around and not getting good sleep and so their schoolwork is starting to fall, it's like, is it okay if, we, if I email your teachers or if the workers email your teachers to let them know what's going on? so that you maybe can get a little extra time to get homework done, that they, they're like, yep, it's time, you know? And so then we'll email and let teachers know, the counselors. And most that I, I contact are so willing to work with the kids and support them, and they're like, I, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so you, you can't always tell when a you know, child's experiencing homelessness. It's a job you wish it would become extinct. Right. Yeah. You enjoy what you do, you mm -hmm. work hard at what you do, but you wish that you could be doing maybe something different because you <laughs> have a great history of educating mm -hmm. young people, Jan. I think we serve the kids that are in school to the best of our ability. We really try hard to make sure that they have everything that they need and hooking the parents up to the community. We don't have housing resources, so we can't help them into an apartment. We can't give them a hotel room to sleep in or you know those types of things. I think for us, it's to build those relationships with people that have case management, that they can help our families get into places to live and help reduce barriers. And a lot of times, because there are so many different things that are affecting getting the housing, a case manager is very helpful because they can go at it from all different directions. Are there tasks force that Fargo has or that North Dakota mm -hmm. has that you're a part of, Jan, that looks at these things and discusses these things. Tell me about them. I'm on the, a member of the FM Coalition for Homeless Persons. And so... Um, what is that? The Fargo-Moorhead Coalition for mm -hmm. Homeless Persons. It's a nonprofit in, in Fargo-Moorhead. Started, I want to say, it's, I, ever since I've been in the district working, I believe that it's been in place. It, it's an organization where the agencies in town are members of there. There's people from the community, businesses, and it's a place where you can go to make connections with what's available in the community um, to help the people out that you're working with, your clients, to find out where the resources are, to make connections, and then there's also committees within there, ones on education, so they, they can educate new people coming into the field on what we do. There's one um, maybe on that's working on the long the long-term plan you know, for the city, you know, working with that. There's another one that's working on, at different times, they'll do things for the homeless vet and the people who have passed away during the year to honor those the people that, during, that have been experiencing homelessness. So there's a lot of committee work that you can do within that. A lot of people in the agencies in town are working with 
families that are experiencing homelessness, trying to help them get stabilized. It's expensive to be homeless, and for them and for the community. Are there policy issues that you work on, Jan, that either at the mm -hmm. local or the state <laughs> level that you're hoping to maybe open some eyes, mm -hmm. facilitate change? We've done some work with like attendance policies. And if we can, in, under McKinney-Vento, if we can say that these absences, these tardies are due to a child's homelessness, they can't be held against them. So we work with them on that. And part of it is, is helping people understand that. At the state level, worked with the team on how can we access documents for kids that are under 18 in North Dakota that aren't with their parents, but they need their birth certificate to get an ID, to get a social, your social security card, and if they're not 18, a lot of times they can't get any of those things. A process put in place now so that we can contact the state and get those documents for kids if the parents are not around. So it's things like that because if you have an unaccompanied youth that's on their own, they're 17, they're trying to work. They can't even, you know, in North Dakota, they can't sign a contract to rent a place. There's a lot of things. They're not really eligible to be in a shelter by themselves because they're under 18. A lot of those barriers are things that we work with to try and help. If there are parents who, either maybe single parents or both parents at home, who may be in a position where they're about to be homeless mm -hmm. or they've just become homeless, what should they do immediately? We have a lot of people that will call into the school and let their counselors know and then they call us. Um, if people are going to be homeless, if they're going to be evicted, we try to refer them to the places to call where they can maybe get some help and stop the eviction and stay because we don't want more people to become homeless. If they do become homeless, the best thing they can do is go and talk to someone they trust at their school with their kids so that we can make sure that we make all the arrangements so the kids can stay at their school. Sometimes we hear that a family has, they're gone for a few days and they're over at another one of our schools registering and we get the thing and it's like, oh, no, no, no. We call the parents and say, you can keep them there. We'll help you get them back and forth. Sure. And that's usually a relief. Sure. Because as one mom said to me, she goes, I can keep them with the teacher they, they know, their friends that they love to be with. It's normal routine for the kids. And then the parents can spend the day doing the adult things they need to do so that they can get back on their feet. We have a lot of families that we meet one time. You know, something happened, a job was lost or a job was finished, you know, so there was no work. Or a medical bill happened, huge, so they ended up having to leave their apartment. One-time things that happen, and we can usually, they can get back on their feet and we never see them again. And then we have other families where it's more of the chronic homelessness, mm -hmm. where it's in and out. And so when you're here over many, many years, you get to see the kids as they get older and older once in a while. And I love seeing the families come in again that I know but I hate to see them sure. also because you don't want them to be homeless. <laughs> I asked a moment ago about teachers and staff mm -hmm. training or what they can do to help. Mm -hmm. What do you tell students who all of a sudden in their classroom have a friend who is now homeless? Mm -hmm. Is there some help to be more empathetic to understand? I think the teachers do a great job about talking about you know different types of families and where families live. I don't think the kids always know who's homeless in their classroom because a lot of times the teachers don't know because they look just like all the other kids. We, you know, and we go get clothing for them. We try to make sure everything is that they look like everyone else. I think the teachers do a great job about just teaching differences and empathy for families. And you know, sometimes you know, some parents will call me and will say, you know, my daughter has been playing with this one and I noticed the family's living in a hotel. And it's like, 
okay you know and i i don't want to disclose sure but they know because they've taken her back home you know to the hotel after school so the parent does know that and she said okay just wanted to make sure you knew who they were so you could help and i'm like mm -hmm. yep i do so you know and thank you and so you appreciate that right? i do i do and we get calls from the community um the parents uh when they register in our district whether it be right away in the in the fall when school starts or when they move into our area and they register there's a piece on there that asks if they're staying someplace temporarily and is it due to hardship and if they answer yes to those two questions it opens a drop down asking where are you staying and there's some choices and what's the best way to reach you that automatically comes to my mailbox and my team will call and we determine if they're experiencing homelessness or not and they qualify for a program. Jan you told me at the top of the interview that this year's numbers are worse than last year's. Mm -hmm. What are the short and long-term projections here? I would say if it keeps going the way it's going, we're going to have more kids identified this year than last year. We've had lots of families get into housing as things are available and programs to help them get in. So it's, you know, it's promising when we can see our families get into a place and we hope and, and pray that they can stay in their places because if they've been able to gain a voucher of some kind or to help them. Probably what happens, has to happen in our community is we need to have more income-based housing that where they pay they pay a percentage of their income because when you look at apartments if you have a family of three or four kids and you try to rent or even a house that's a huge amount it's a mortgage payment you know and if they're not able to buy I think it'll only get worse until we can get some more affordable housing for our families are there opportunities for the community to help and make a difference there are we work through actually went through two nonprofits a lot that are just mostly for homeless kids. Matthew's Voice Project does a lot with us and also Golden Drive. And they're both nonprofits in town. We have people that will put just cash donations in our foundation, the Fargo Public Schools Foundation. Uh, we've had memorials go there, all kinds of different things. And that's kind of our emergency fund when we have needs that, like I said to um, someone, not every need that a high school kid has that's on their own is school related. The dollars we have in school are federal funds, so it has to be educational related. But I had a kiddo once who said, I think it was his theater teacher or something, is going to be in a play downtown. I would love to go see it. I was able to take some of those donated funds, buy him a bus pass so he could go down, get him a ticket, and then he could go watch the play. It's, you know, stuff like that that kids should be able to do that are fun. Makes a difference for them. Yeah, senior pictures. Michelle Warren Photography does some fun you know, she does it free of charge, and then we get the pictures and the kids print them off. Or now they just keep them all digital, you know, in mm -hmm. their world. But, you know, stuff like that that makes kids belong and feel like, you know, it's they're part of the school. You know, they do everything. We try to make sure that they can be in activities, coming up as prom, graduation, all those types of things. And it's fun to see. There's nothing better than when you get to see the kids walk across the stage and they're graduating. Jana, people want to get more information about the homeless issue here in Fargo for students. Where can they go? Are there online resources? There are. Um, you can, on our district website, there is a, a, a homeless McKinney Vento page that has my contact information. So if they wanted to email, they could. Jan Anderson, she's the Fargo Public Schools Homeless Liaison. Jan, thanks for what you do. Thank you. And your team as well. <laughs> and thank you for joining us on Main Street. Thank you. We love our job. <laughs>
That was Jan Anderson from the Fargo School District, where she works as the homeless liaison. Still to come on Main Street, a teacher with 50 years of experience in dance. That's coming up after this. All it right there, you can do anything, but you're gonna have to keep it on the shore and sweet. Gonna have to keep it on the shore and sweet. Don't need a stick of butter, all I need is a pad. No long money drizzle, all I need is a tag. Hold it right there, you can do anything, but you're gonna have to keep it on the shore. Sweet, short, sweet. Gonna have to keep it on the shore and sweet. Crash on the nail through the wall with the thud But if you miss the head, you'll wreck up the stick All right there, you can do anything But you're gonna have to keep it on the short and sweet Short and sweet Gonna have to keep it on the short and sweet Prairie Public's Short and Sweet Member Drive, coming soon. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with Craig Blumenshine. And Craig, now for such a delightful interview. Jackie Sather has taught dance in Jamestown for a long time, decades. And she started dancing as a young child in Valley City. Ashley, she's now almost 80 years old and and still still has passion and still (laughs) teaches and welcomes many, many students in Jamestown into her top of the stairs dance studio each and every day. She's a wonderful interview, pleasure to visit with. Welcome to Main Street. Thank you. How long have you been teaching dance? Probably since I've been 18, and um, I'm 78 now, so you can do the math. Quite, quite a long time. <laughs> At such a young age, why mm-hmm. was dance important to you? I grew up in Valley City, and we were fortunate enough to have an, a dance instructor there, Carol Torgerson, who was just fantastic. She taught every little girl in Valley City how to dance. And um, she was just my mentor and my idol. I started when I was probably at three or four. In those days, that's all there was for little girls to do too, which is good. I mean, we didn't have any sports programs or anything back then. So that's how I got started and Carol was my inspiration. She passed away a few years ago and she taught up until she was in her mid 80s in Colorado, so. So you're working to to beat her record there, are you? (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) we'll see. Is it hard for you to stay motivated to teach after all of these years, Jackie? I think that hardest is to come up with different ideas for dance recitals, for for our shows and different music. However, what we've been doing in, in the last few years is going back to recitals I did years ago and just duplicated them, just doing them over again. I just feel if the Rockettes can do the same routine for 80 some years, so can we. (laughs) So when you were a a young woman, how did you learn to become a better dancer after you were say 18? Practice. It's one thing that it's really hard for me to get the kids to practice these days because everything is totally different than it was when I was growing up. A lot of practice, a lot lot of dedication. My mom. She uh, she made sure I practiced all the time, and and I think too when the kids are in this this time in, in a this this era of children that they have so many many other things to do and it's not their fault at all. It's just that they don't take the time to really study it. 
like we did when we were young. When you were younger, what was your favorite type of dance? Was it tap, was it jazz, was it ballet? I think it was probably ballet then too. It still is my favorite. And I, I stress ballet a lot up here. It's the basis of all dance and requires concentrated and repetitive study and demands a high level of discipline. Poise, grace, and coordination, along with music appreciation, are accomplished also through proper dance training. Do young women today have an appreciation of ballet like maybe you did when you were oh, young? I do believe that most, I'd say half of my students, half of the enrollment, they do. My older girls especially, from seventh grade on up to seniors or adults. I even have a ladies adult ballet class for all ages. We are at your top of the stairs dance studio. If we had a hole in the floor, we'd be looking at a bar <laughs> right. in Jamestown. But this is, this is your home. Right, and before there was a bar, it was a department store, the fair store. It changed and there was a new owner and eventually the guy bought it and turned it into the corner bar, which so, is great. I mean, it's... How long have you been here? I've been in this same spot for 50 years. I was teaching here in Jamestown, but I was com I lived in Valley at the time, and I was re driving back and forth and teaching this one day a week. And there was a woman who was from out of town. Her, she and her husband moved here, and she started a ballroom studio here in this same spot. And it, it just didn't work for her. Latin ballroom is wonderful. But you know, we're in North Dakota, like polka, <laughs> waltz, jitterbug. Mm -hmm two-step. So anyway, she called me and she wanted to know if I was interested in buying the mirrors and taking over the lease. And I said, yes, that sounds great. I mean, I was teaching at the Armory, which has been torn down for years, and other spots in town, the American Legion in the basement there. So I took her up on it and I've just been here ever since. I became aware of you because you teach my granddaughter, yes. little Kate, and she loves coming to dance Good. class. And we love her. Well, thank you. We've come to your recitals. You teach the little ones way up until high school, and as you said, adults. Mm -hmm. Is it hard to teach all of those different levels? I always was enthralled in my daughter's classes that her dance instructor, instructor Trish Shropshire, could handle the young kids and the older kids mm -hmm. equally well. Well, it just... I suppose from years and years of doing it. I enjoy the little ones. My, my preschool classes are three and four years old. They always steal the show, of course, at a performance. I can attest to that. <laughs> I know, it's just so cute. And then as they're, as they're growing older, some of the kids stay with me for the whole time. They start when they're little and they graduate and they're still in dance class. And then a lot come and go. Do you think that dance is still as important to many families today as it was 30 or 40 years ago? Absolutely. For one thing, it's something pretty. The ballet is something pretty, you know, compared to a lot of the grungy stuff in the world today. I've always felt that this is just a good example. I can tell my, say my fifth, sixth grade on up to strike a pose for a picture and they're standing straight and they're posing just perfect. And I think all that comes from the dance training, the posture, Grace. How much different, if any, are you as a teacher now than when you were first starting to teach 50 years ago? Oh, it's real different. <laughs> How is it different? <laughs> well, it used to be when that bottom door opened, you could hear, hear a pin drop. Now that bottom door opens, it's like a party coming on. <laughs> it's just You're not I, as strict 
as you used to oh, be? Oh, I'm strict. In fact, I, I have been criticized for being strict. But at the same time, the parents are paying me to teach their child. And so I'm, I'm not here to discipline them. I'm here to teach them dance. And we really don't have any severe discipline problems. If we do, it's just something like, we'll just suggest that maybe it's just not meant for them. And to try something like gymnastics, where the, you know, which is more running and flipping and everything. Which, and I love gymnastics, it's great. No, it's, it's different, a lot different. What impact do you think you have had on your dancers? What do you leave with them? For one thing, Top of the Stairs, I think has been like home to so many of my kids. They didn't fit in other places, like in sports. It's, it's like, when I have a lot of students that'll come to Jamestown, come back to Jamestown, and they'll come up and see me, and they just love to come to the studio. They just, it's not, nothing but good memories. And so that makes me feel great. I get a lot of comments on Facebook about that too. That and the fact that I have one student who went on to be a professional dancer and he's retired now. And then I have some students that have taught as they got, when they got older. So I, I guess mostly the biggest impact I think that I hope that I've caused is that I've taught them how to appreciate music, all different kinds of music, and to remember their, their manners, their poise, their, their grace. Speaking of different styles of music, Jackie, I just have to ask you. <laughs> I think we have some, maybe some country playing in the background, if mm -hmm. I hear it correctly. But hip-hop has come along now. Mm -hmm. Didn't exist when you started. Oh, no. <laughs> have you had trouble adapting to different music genres that have come and gone? I really haven't. I've, I've, I've enjoyed all the different music, even, even hip-hop. Um, I don't do it very well anymore at my age, but my assist, I have an assistant teacher who's fantastic. She's been with me now for about five or six years. I mean, I have to admit, I'm, you know, the older you get, some things you just can't do anymore <laughs> physically. And I've had knee surgery and a back surgery. Do you still dance though? Oh yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But when it comes to doing a big grand jeté, a big leap, it's kind of like, oop, Megan's got to do demonstrate <laughs> that. <laughs> Is there any training that you've had over the years that you really mm -hmm. remember that have really had an impact on you? Yes. At my age, I feel so fortunate that when I was a young teacher, I would go to workshops. I've taken lessons from Luigi, who is, they call him the grandfather of jazz dance, Gus Giordano, Joe Tremaine, who is still teaching. He's out of that three, he's still alive. Patricia McBride. I've had, I've had lessons at workshops from all these great dancers that just started the jazz movement or started the tap movement. So that's one thing I, I'm just, I'm thankful for. I don't like getting old, but at the same time, I've had that opportunity. So you still like to learn? Oh yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. And is there more for you to learn, Jackie? Oh, there's always more to learn, yes. Uh, especially with ballet. Mm -hmm. and, and tap too, Tap's, tap has gotten to be real popular again. We're enjoying our conversation with Jackie Sather in her studio, Top of the Stairs Dance Studio in Jamestown, where she has been instructing for almost 50 years. What's the biggest challenge that you've had, Jackie, in maintaining a dance studio? I would say the biggest challenge I've had is um, it's called Just for Kicks, a different type of dance. And you don't have to have any certification. Anybody can be a dance teacher. And, I, and I'm not saying this, it'd be unethical to me, for me to say that I don't like it, that's not it. It's just that I put my whole heart and soul into dance and so have so many teachers my age and younger. And then when 
someone starts up a dance program that takes no training, just getting up, looking at a video, my attendance, my enrollment went down. Probably about maybe 15 years ago, it went just down. And then I just, we just kept it going and it came back again. How did you manage through COVID? Oh, uh, <laughs> we stayed home a lot. My assistant and my other, I have another lady who's worked for me we're trying to figure it out the other day. It's probably close to 40 years. Clean has been up here with me. Clean works behind the desk. She takes the money. She t ties the tap shoes. She dries the tears. She helps with all the all the things that go on out in the lobby before the kids get into the uh, studio. So we would come up here and with our masks on and just sit here and cry the blues because we weren't teaching. <laughs> but anyway, it, it was tough. We were closed for a long time. Take me around your room with some of the things that I see on the wall okay. here. Um, Jackie, if you would, there are some photos, there are mm -hmm. some artwork. What's meaningful to you? This photo up, the, the one with the little, the little kids with the orange, right here, mm -hmm. this four. This is my son, and he, when he was little, they're probably in second grade, and they were called the Disco Kids. And we, I think we danced we perform more in, the, in Jamestown than probably anybody ever has. They were they were asked to dance all the time because they were so so good. This is now growing up, <laughs> my son, uh, Luigi. I got his autograph. That was that's important to me. <laughs> Patricia McBride and myself. You told me earlier that you've had a chance to leave, been offered to go other places in the community. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go anywhere. No, I just this is just perfect for a dance. This is the kind of an old-fashioned style too. Most dance studios were in buildings on the second floor, like in bigger cities or even in the little town I grew up in. I asked you a moment ago about the challenges. Jackie, if I were to ask you what the biggest rewards have been, is it every year watching that group give their final recital or is it just certain events that have really stuck with you? Oh, definitely watching my older students when they when they're leaving, you know, as as seniors. I just think about how I've I've been blessed to have known them since they were little, tiny kids, and all of a sudden now I've been I've been through their life with them, and their families, and I am teaching lots of kids that I taught their mothers. So, and that I think is a real accomplishment. <laughs> My wife worked at a dance studio in Cheyenne, Wyoming years ago Okay. and had many classes like the ones I think that you offer, but boy, she had a couple real competitive high-end classes that were offered in that studio. Those young ladies and their families were awfully oh, serious, yes. maybe to a fault, about who got on that group, who didn't, oh, who yes. wasn't. Anything like that happened to you? Oh, no. Here, here's the thing on dance competitions. That's been a a big thing now for quite a while and my dance studio competed in the late 90s and I think it was probably 2001 or two I quit. We used to go to Billings, Montana for the I Love Dance competition. I mean it's, it's great for kids to compete but at the same time it kind of changes their personality a little bit I noticed. The other students and the other parents weren't as cooperative as I expected, and we won many trophies. I only took older students. I would never take the younger ones. The last one we went to is probably maybe 2002 or three, but and I thought, you know, this is so much money. They're very, very spendy. And we could be going to dance workshops and spending our money on, on lessons. 
So we started just quitting the competition, going to every year the South Dakota Dance Teachers Network puts on a big, big workshop in different towns in South Dakota. And so that's, that's our thing. Every year we fundraise, the kids fundraise, and then we all pile in cars and we go to, like this last year it was in Sioux Falls. And, they, and we dance for two, three days, and they get all this instruction for their money instead of spending all the money on competing. The way you market your class primarily has made, changed a lot since 50 years ago. Mm -hmm, definitely. How do people learn about what Top of the Stairs Dance Studio is all about? Uh, well, it's kind of strange sometimes because I have talked to people that didn't have a clue there's a dance studio in town. I think it's just through word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Are there other dance instructors that you know that have been at it as long as you have? I think there's a gal up in, in Devil's Lake. Her name is Mickey Noltemeyer, a friend of mine. Mickey has been teaching, I think, probably as long as I have been. What are you going to be doing in five or ten years? Do you still want to continue this as long as you can? Well, I want to continue as long as I can, as long as I have Colleen and Megan. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> I also have a student teacher that comes in on Thursdays. Cece, and she's great too to help. If I can have the help, I want to keep it going. There might be some parents who are listening now and have never really given thought to whether their kids, boy or girl, mm -hmm. should be in mm -hmm. a dance class like yours. Mm -hmm. What do you want to tell them right now? Give it a try. I have, especially boys, I get a lot of inquiries for, for boys and they'll Say, well, I just don't know. And it's, well, just come and give it a try. Do your students, Jackie, specialize, if you will, or are they taking many different types of classes through their time with you? Okay, this is how I work it. My, my classes are combined. So, but we have to start with ballet. The kids come, they go right to the ballet bar. And we do our ballet bar work, and we do our cross the floor turns and our combinations for, say, 15 minutes. And the rest of the time is tap and variety arts, or as they get older, jazz dance. And then as they get older, probably junior high or so, then it's kind of down to ballet, especially in the summer for their summer classes. And then jazz. The most misunderstood thing about dance classes that people have come to you and said, boy, I just didn't realize, what would you tell me? I would say that people would, especially when it comes to boys and dance, they think it's sissified and they're a sissy if they take dance or they're it's just not a place for boys well my son grew up in this studio and he's far from being <laughs> sissy <laughs> because he's a musician the dance he didn't have a choice he had to take dance and which is kind of good in a way because a lot of his friends took dance to them at one point when kelly was younger i had like maybe six ma male dancers in a class along with the girls because kelly they were his friends. <laughs> mm -hmm. People have the wrong idea that it's not a, it, it's, it's hard, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to um, learn ballet. And it takes some time and effort and strength to become very strong with ballet. If you had some advice to someone who's thinking, I may want to teach dance, mm -hmm. what would you tell them? I was, well, first of all, I would mention something about definitely getting some good training and then get certified. We're certified through a National Association of Dancers and Affiliated Artists. We've worked for that certificate to have someone say, well, 
I had a year of dance, and I, I just I want to open a dance studio. And well, I couldn't stop them up, obviously, but at the same time, I would say get some good training so you can do a good job and pass it on, pass good training on. Looking back 50 years, would you do it differently? No, I don't think so. I wouldn't. Jackie Sather, she is the inspiration, the director, <laughs> and the everything to Top of the Stairs Dance Studio in Jamestown and she's been doing it now for 50 years. Jackie, mm -hmm. thank you for joining us. Well, on thank Main you Street. for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Dakota Datebook for January 29th. On this date in 1910, students at the University of North Dakota were studying for their final exams. Registration day on that year's calendar was February 8th. So they were also considering classes to take during the upcoming spring semester. The students had the opportunity to take a two-credit class about Islam. UND's student newspaper, The Weekly Student, wrote that Professor McCown had made a special study of the religion, quote, while living among its followers in India, unquote. Professor McCown was on the faculty of Wesley College, a religious college that had been newly established on the north side of University Avenue, opposite UND. UND and Wesley College had signed an affiliation agreement in 1905, and that permitted automatic credit transfers between the two institutions. This groundbreaking collaboration between a public university and a religious college would be imitated by other universities throughout the United States. President Robertson of Wesley College prided himself on fostering an ecumenical culture. Even his critics conceded that Wesley College was, quote, maintained upon a broad, non-sectarian basis, unquote. Students of all creeds and beliefs could choose from the various courses offered in religion. Wesley College also taught courses in Hebrew and Biblical Greek that year. The weekly student wrote that no other state university, through its affiliation with a church college, had classes available, quote, in the philosophy of religion and in the Bible in the original languages, unquote. Professors at Wesley College were noted for teaching classes of their choice. The attitude would be strongly criticized by the Methodist Church's internal auditors, who wrote a generation later in 1931 that, although there is a considerable amount of specialization in the offerings, no attempt is made to cover the field completely by specialized courses. For example, a brief course is given in the Gospel of John and the Epistle to the Hebrews, but other sections of the Bible are not similarly covered by the specialized courses. The result is that the offerings appear spotty and are without definite integration. The eclecticism at Wesley College was by design. The class about Islam, available to students at UND in 1910, was in keeping with that tradition. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Andrew Alexis Varvel. I'm Bill Thomas filling in for Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from Humanities North Dakota. 
That's it for this Monday edition of Main Street on today's All Things Considered. Hundreds of books have been removed from libraries over the years in schools, and we learn about one that has an underground library of banned titles. And on tonight's Hidden Brain at 7 o'clock Mountain, a psychologist once convinced volunteers they had met Bugs Bunny at Disneyland, except he's not a Disney character, so... How trustworthy are memories? That's today's Hidden Brain. Tomorrow on the show, Ashley, we're going to interview someone I actually met on an airplane. Turns out she's a brilliant student here at North Dakota State University getting her master's degree. She aspires to get a PhD in genetics. Later, she just got engaged. And oh, by the way, she's aspiring to be on the United States Olympic team as a shooter in shooting sports. (laughs) Her name is Soraya Nevin. And it was a fun interview at her shooting range with her NDSU shooting coach. And that program also has a long storied history. And that's tomorrow on Main Street. And we hope you'll join us.